right, folks. Welcome back to another glorious episode of the Boombastic Cast with the greatest man in the world, Alexander Hawk. That would be me, yes. And I the lowest man on the totem pole, Matthew Fisher, doing it big, trying to do it big, um, doing a big style, making it nice for this episode of the Boombastic Cast. In a few moments, we're going to have the great Richard Stanley, uh, director extraordinaire of films like Color Out of Space, Hardware, Dust Devil, um, really great dude. Well, greetings, great, sir. Big pleasure. Great is a part of a, a big paranormal show on the network called Mostly Ghostly. And today we all gather to talk about Halloween, one of one of our most favored holidays in the world. Now, Richard, I know you're from South Africa, right? That, 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 that's your... Yeah, I was born in South Africa, and um, this was a misfortune from the point of view that the South Africans don't celebrate Halloween and don't right. know what it's about. Um, that's yeah. mostly because they don't have seasons the way that we oh. do in the north. There's no detectable um, autumn in, um, in Cape Town. Most of the trees are deciduous. And I think it's kind of the same in Australia. You, can't, you, you vaguely feel it, but it's not the dramatic event that it is here in, um, in Europe, where um, you've got the insane profusion of colours and the, the autumn mists and you truly feel October. Um, I read about it, of course, in the works of Ray Bradbury, and um, I guess um, saw the John Carpenter movie on its first release at my local drive-in, so um, knew Halloween was going on, but it just wasn't going on in my country. And um, I was, yeah, super envious. Yeah, it's starting to become a bigger thing now, though. The, the, I was reading up on it. They're doing Halloween they do costume parties and the whole they do trick-or-treating now and stuff. It's slowly starting to come over. Well, it's a pretty glorious thing, because I think thanks to the work of Ray Bradbury and thanks in part to um, to Halloween, the Carpenter movie, and I think to a large degree the Halloween sequence in E.T., the Steven Spielberg movie, it means that Halloween has been catching on worldwide because kids all over the world saw that this was happening and thought, damn, that looks fun. Um, even though there was no official recognition for the holiday, we saw it catch on again in England. It spread across Europe. People are trick-or-treating here in the French Pyrenees, and it's even got a little toehold in Africa. Hell yeah. Yeah, Halloween's very important in the community aspect of it as well. I mean, I think that's why it it clicks, you know. There's, just like Christmas has certain... There's certain very community aspects of it, you know, doing going to the, the, the choir and going and looking at the lights and stuff like that. And the ice skating, if you will, uh, and all that stuff that kind of gets jammed into that, that season. You know, Halloween is that, that, that vibe as well, where you get to get, get out there and you meet your neighbors. It's one of the only time you actually, you know, interact with your neighbors in a beautiful way. Well, it's pretty much the only time of year where people look at me and they don't look at me strangely because I fit right in. Um. (laughs) i support that i know you're you're very um you're a spiritual man you know what i mean i try to keep an open mind that's a beautiful thing we like open minds here they're the best things in the world to have you know um you know we'll go do you so with them not really celebrating halloween you didn't really get involved with all that trick-or-treating and stuff as a kid right not as a kid, it came later. But yeah. um, now I'm super grateful to do anything I can to um, help uh, light the Halloween fire and um, keep it going. 
and um, certainly encourage my local trick or treaters. Yeah, you giving out candy? What are you giving out? Well, it's trick or treat. So, um, so some years it's a trick instead. It's um, <laughs> just giving out giving out candy. That'd be too simple. But um, we've still got enough special makeup effects and odd little bits and pieces floating around down here that every so often I like to give them a good scare too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be on. Uh, put it online. The scares. I could. I could appreciate that. Did you ever dress up when you got older in the teen years or to this day and age? Well, wait, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna, I, I was gonna tell you a story about that. And, um, that's, um, <clears throat> I was sort of saving up for my Halloween offering. Hell yeah. All right. I'm with it. The, um, yeah, the John Carpenter's Halloween was, uh, groundbreaking on many levels. Of course, it was the first real low, low budget horror film or film really to make gigantic profit. You know what I mean? So that changed the world. And then, of course, it's interesting. I never really thought of it, but you're right with the way that just that film going to a country that doesn't celebrate it would kind of get their first look at what Halloween is. That's a very interesting take on that. Yeah. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, initially, my parents were, were kind of snooty about it. And it was like, we don't do that here. And they were a little down on the Carpenter movie because of uh, they pronounced it boogeyman rather than bogeyman. So it's like, you know, they were all a bit, a bit sniffy about it in the same way as they were sniffy about rock and roll. But um, yeah. there's no holding it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Carpenter was very rock and roll back in his day, for sure. Even the scores, the scores are heavy with the rock. You know what I mean? Alexander Hawk over there. Yeah. Just got back from the war. You know, how's it, <laughs> how are we doing? I'm doing good. But it is kind of interesting because I'm, if you look at it, it's, I mean, all around the different countries have different holidays, different uh, traditions. And when you have something like Halloween or any other horror movie or anything that showcases the the holiday the season within itself and then it becomes such a big hit that you know it hits different uh, parts of the world that do not celebrate Halloween and it gives them a kind of um, a taste of this and um, sometimes I mean which is, is great to hear that they start say hey this looks like fun let's you know bring it into and and try it here and it's, I mean, that's one of the things I love about movies and about just uh, cinema in general, uh, whether it's movies, TV, or so forth and so on, is tr- uh, taking ideas that might be, you know, prevalent in one culture but not in another and crossing the line and giving another culture a look at what another culture does and kind of like, you know, the blending of, of the you know, the cultures and the blending of uh, what we do and enjoy and have that common ground to talk about. Yeah. Like Richard's films was always a great blend of horror and like that there was a spiritual supernatural element to it that was really cool that I always dug. You know what I mean? Now, Richard, have you ever ever encountered – a ghost in your days? Um, I would say yes. Yeah. 
And um, I think um, there is such a thing. And, um, yeah, up to a few years ago, I would have said no. But as I've gotten older, like I say, I've gotten a little bit more open-minded. Uh, I generally discredit anything that happens while I'm on my own because I assume that's just my imagination or um, that I'm you know, having an acid flashback or one thing or another. I'll explain it on my mind. will find a way of explaining it. But, so um, generally it has to be something that's um, been definitively witnessed by um, two or three different people where we could all agree it just, it actually happened. And, um, yeah, I did run into something like that a few years ago. Um <laughs> Yeah, it was very, very, very trivial, but at the same time, we don't, we couldn't explain it, um, which um, kind of pushed it over the edge. Uh, and I guess you want me to say more, right? Sure, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, it, it, the, the ghost story, which I wasn't really going to dish up, but might as well. Um, that actually, that happened about, started about um, fifteen years ago. And um, what happened was we were in a very old hotel in um, Carcassonne in the south of France. And um, rather like The Shining, it was the last day of the season. It was closing day at the hotel and um, we were the the only guests there. It was a real um, sort of 19th century art deco, very, very beautiful, um, yeah, crumbling establishment. Um, there were only three of us in the in the hotel on that night. Um, myself, my friend Craig, who was down the hall, and my then girlfriend Maggie, who was in the room with me. And um, just as we were getting into bed, and I put out the bedside light, I heard um, the pattering of um, tiny feet in the hallway outside the door of the room. And the, the the footfalls came pattering down the hall, and just as they went past the outside of the door, they did a little skip. And I heard a, a, I clearly heard a little girl's voice giggle, and then the footsteps ran away down the hall. And um, I said to Maggie, who was in bed with me, um, "Do you hear that? Um, a little girl just ran past the door. Um, she didn't hear a thing. She said, no, I didn't hear anything. You're on drugs. Go to sleep. <laughs> um, and, um, just shut me down. Uh, then the, um, the next day at breakfast, we're sitting down there, and my buddy Craig, who was staying down the hall, comes down to, to eat, and he gives us a weird look. And then he says to Maggie, were, were you on drugs last night? Um, I, I heard you running around and giggling outside my door. And because it was a little girl's voice, he thought it was her. And she'd been in the room with me, but hadn't heard it at all. Uh, at that point, Maggie got very freaked out and paranoid because she assumed that me and Craig must have um, gotten together and cooked it all up as a joke to, to scare her. So um, she made us promise not to talk about it again. Uh, and, um, we, um, yeah, kind of forgot it happened. And um, I didn't really think of it again for about um, 10 years. Uh, and then about a decade later, I had a, um, a Californian friend flying into the south of France whose um, plane was coming in late, uh, and they wanted to know a good place to stay in Carcassonne, where the airport is. So I said, okay, why don't you book into the hotel terminus and try and get a room on the third floor? Uh, and, uh, then afterwards, um, we talked on the phone, and I said, okay, how was the room? And she'd had a decent flight, and I said, well, what was the hotel like? And she said, yeah, it's, it's real nice, but um, there's a dead little girl on the third floor. Which uh, came about 10 years afterwards without any, without any cues from me. And, um, yeah, 
put the fear in me. Um, yeah. That's funny. That reminds me of a story my uncle told me of, uh, he, he said when he was a teenager, he used to have these dreams of this witch that was in the corner of his room laughing at him. And he, he was like haunted by these reoccurring nightmares. He said that later in life, he had, a, he had a son and he said he woke up one night to his son crying and he went into the son's room to go see what was bothering him. And he, the son said, I, there was a witch in the corner of my room laughing at me. And he said that when his son said that, he died. He was like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just such a creepy image, you know what I mean, of, of that. And yeah. Ray, I know you're a man of parent. What do, what do you equate to all the reoccurring things like this? Uh, reoccurring like that can be a haunting if, I would say, active. They are there if uh, you can interact with them. Otherwise, it is probably an energy imprint. Uh, that person, a part of that person is the energy was left there, and that energy manifests as the person. The fact that it, the kid, he's seen it, and then his kid's seen it, is that like a latch-on type thing? Or what, what, what would you equate that to, like a curse? Or what, what do you think that could be? Well, if, you, if you're talking about the witch, uh, then I, it could be a curse on the place that they lived. And they were, they were picking up on it by living there, both of them separately having the similar or same experiences, one in a dream and one uh, as they're going to sleep. Yeah. So that, that's, that's more like the, uh, yeah, that's more of a curse, I'd say, than anything else. And it's a, it could have just been a lady. Ladies get a bad name. They, they could have said it was a witch because it was a female. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it had the Wizard of Oz hat on and the broomstick. You know what I mean? Well, I know a lot of people say witch automatically. I have a friend who's Wiccan. Um, I've known for about 30 years. And with Halloween coming up, or they call it Sam Samhain, um, they celebrate quite a bit. But everybody says, oh, you're a witch. Well, she's not a witch. She has a Wiccan belief system. She happens to be the head of a coven, but that's simply their name for the group of people that uh, practice the ceremonies. It's an earth medicine, basically, or an earth belief. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was some creepy stuff. Yeah, I'm glad mm -hmm. they, with the group thing, like Richard was saying, the group thing, when you were somebody else and you see it, uh, it definitely makes it more real. I remember, I think I talked about it on the Ghostly Show before where, you know, me and uh, we were coming back from a film shoot and uh, we were driving down the street late at night and we drove by this school and uh, I had my window down and I remember looking up and I seen something uh, and what I seen was I seen a, a guy in like a top hat and a, a long tre black trench coat like the old fashioned timey clothes and he looked like he was like 15 feet tall and he was standing in the road waving like off into the road at the cars coming by. And I remember I, tur I turned to the kid with me and I go, did you see that? And he said, yeah. And before I told him what it was, I go, what was it? And what he explained to me was the same exact thing that I seen, except he wasn't 15 feet. He was floating. Uh, he was floating. He was, but he was at the same height. He just, he didn't have long legs. You know what I mean? So like very weird, very weird occurrences. Now, Alexander, I know you've never really had any, you've never really had any, uh, paranormal occurrences happened to you so you're almost what they say a naysayer a little a little bit they say well 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 I, I the thing with me is i would never call myself a naysayer i mean i do believe that 
if I haven't witnessed or experienced, it does not mean that it doesn't exist. I mean, I have not, never been on uh, uh, the, the surface of Mars, but I do know that Mars does exist. So, so I do have um, that way of looking at it. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, I know that I work at a uh, CVS uh, back home. Um, and I've been told by numerous of my colleagues that there's a poltergeist, there's a ghost of some kind that actually lives in the basement. Now, I've worked at that same store for 24 years, and I have gone in the basement multiple times, and I personally have not experienced any of the uh, paranormal experiences that some of my other colleagues have, have experienced. It could simply be that I'm not attuned to it or just uh, it just doesn't happen when I'm down there. But I do believe that it's possible, uh, even though I haven't experienced it. You're a prime candidate for it. Because I do feel that like the people that see it are like, if you're going down there looking and going, oh, I really hope I see something. I really hope I see something this time. I don't think it'll catch you. It'll feel your energy. And I don't think it'll ever show itself to you. So it's one of those, you see it when you're thinking about something else. You know what I mean? Not, not, try, not trying to focus on seeing something. I think so. It's possible. And with it being a work establishment, you know, in the basement, a lot of things could have, uh, you know, could have happened there. Somebody could have, you know, had a heart attack, maybe moving some produce or, you know, maybe yeah. uh, done something uh, more intentionally to themselves down there. You know what I mean? All types of crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that while I've been there 24 years, uh, I know that I think it was uh, like 30 years that it was a CVS. Before that, it was a uh, uh, like a town grocery store. Mm. Um, before that, I don't know. I'd have to go into the history books on that one. Uh, I mean, anything is possible. I mean, for me personally, when I go in the basement, I'm very goal orientated. I'd go in, I get what I need and I go out. I don't, you know, hang out or anything like that. So I've never heard that term used for getting supplies out of the closet. Goal orientation. <laughs> <laughs> I like it though. That's a very positive approach. <laughs> well, put it this way: I, I mean, when I go down, I go down to get the supplies and to get back up. I mean, I, I, I never snuck down there to you know smoke up a doobie or, <laughs> or just you know kill time. Maybe I should. Maybe I, I'd have a, a better work experience if I uh, snuck some time down there. Probably. You'd have a better, a better interaction with that spirit down there, probably. You, you could see the face in the smoke when you blow it out, like Hollow Man. <laughs> probably. You know what I mean? Yeah, one question. Do they have extractor fans in the basement? Um, I don't think so. I don't think there's any fans in the basement. It's pretty stuffy. We don't really have much of a circulation down there. Oh, we're just fishing because, yeah, um, I've read a lot about extractor fans being related to um, reported apparitions in workplaces. Hmm. Um, what they call sick building syndrome. Um, apparently, um, the um, speed at which an extractor fan um, turns can um, produce um, infrasound or ultrasound, which can um, cause um, cold spots. 
the sensation of one's skin crawling and um, even cause um, blurring in the corner of one's eyes, which can resemble figures if one's um, going past or going up and down the staircase. And um, and there have been a few times where folk have changed the speed of the, uh, have have changed the extractor file that the apparitions have stopped or um, the the vibe has changed, but not in this case. Oh, no, no, there's definitely no fans down there. It, that would require uh, Sevis to put more money into the store than they probably want to. But, yeah, uh, I would not say the fans have anything to do with it. Definitely not down there because, uh, yeah, there's no fans in the basement. <laughs> no fans upstairs either, it sounds like. Uh, not really. Vibration, vibrations are big. I hear that a lot. Like with the base, there's a lot of... You know, people say that you see a lot of entities and things in the basement because, you know, a lot of the energy from the house kind of usually circulates to an energy box in the basement and the concrete kind of grounds everything out. So that's why you see a lot of stuff kind of in the basement, supposedly. You know, you'll see one soon, Alex. Don't worry. It's waiting for (laughs) you. Oh, I'm I'm sure hanging out with you and and Ray sooner or later I will experience uh, experience a ghost. But uh, at at this point, uh, being forty years old, I have not experienced any of those uh, situations at this point. You probably already have. You're just naysaying. Block it out of your mind. Well, all I have to say is I I I can't think of anything that I couldn't understand or couldn't. Uh, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I I have experience and I just you know rationalize what happened. I feel like a lot of people would try and do that. You know what I mean? Because from the get go, I mean the idea if you were to take it just on paper is the get go of just people that have passed still being here. Uh, people don't want to believe that. I mean the, the whole death thing. I think people are so afraid of in general that like anything related to the topic of they don't want to talk about it. You know what I mean? It's just. Let's not go there type deal, you know. But we say let's go there, mostly ghostly. <laughs> Richard, what do you what do you think happens after you die? I got no idea. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind. I hope it's not too awful. I, I mean, agree with um, that. yeah, there's all there's all kinds of different possibilities. I mean, the um, naysayers think that consciousness withers and dies in the brainstem and. Um, that there is no afterlife and that um, this way around, um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know when it actually ends. Spontaneous firings of neurons go on in corpses for sometimes days after they've stopped breathing. Uh, on that level, I'd like to be um, um, vaporized or um, cremated as fast as possible just to um, hedge my bets in case there is no afterlife. Um, and um, in the eventuality of an afterlife, I sure hope it's not a um, traditional um, Catholic Christian one, because um, I really wouldn't want to end up um, sharing eternity with um, St. Dominic or um, the Crusaders or some of the um, the monstrous assholes of the past who have made it in there. So uh, if I could come back and, you know, be reincarnated as a tree or something, I'd settle for that. Otherwise, um, if I could... Um, end up haunting one of my favorite locations, that would be fun too. That'd be cool. I know Ray, Ray's a big believer in the reincarnation deal, which is cool. Yeah, it's a, death's weird. It's like, it's either all darkness or like a subconscious thing. You know, to go back to the old, 
the old the old way of thinking of the heaven and hell. Yeah, you know, hell's just like torturous and horrifying and heaven was always like pitched as, you know, not so much fun, but more of like a, a job. You know what I mean? Of uh, like a worshiping job, you know what I mean? But, yeah, and I've got ideological issues with that, so um Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping it doesn't turn out to be true. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be tricky. It'll be tricky. It'll be very interesting. It's the great, it's the great, you know, the biggest question of all is like, what happens when, when you die? So, yeah, I think that's why people have trouble wrapping. They can't even wrap their head around like the event, let alone what happens after, you know? Yeah, and there's, there's growing evidence to suggest that we might be living in a simulation. There's a lot of folk out there who are buying into um, simulation theory these days, mostly because of the, <clears throat> the way that space-time seems to be written in binary code which yeah. um, implies that the whole thing might turn out to be a, um, a super complex um, sandbox video game. And, Imagine um, that. Imagine yeah, if that's what it turned out to be. It's just within the, the realms of, I guess, um, quantum possibility at the moment. Yeah, it's crazy. I would love to know who the people watching that sandbox is, the, 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 you know, who, who designs and operates something like that. Crazy. Yeah, and uh, it provokes a bunch of questions. Um, and um, are we participating in this willingly? Um, or is, uh, are we here against our wills? So, you know, we get to find out. Yeah. It's weird that it brings, you know, the only people you could think of or the only the entities you could think of being above us that would want to do something would be some type of alien life type deal. You know what I mean? Uh, even the super, even like the super the most richest people in the world I don't even think would, I mean, they, you know, have, I don't know. It's weird. The, the, the simulation thing's so weird. I mean, the fact that evidence comes out every day that makes it look, look, look more realistic is, is insane. You know what I mean? Very interestingly. Yeah, it, it's, it's certainly creepy. And yeah, enough um, smart people are buying into the idea like Elon Musk and folks that um, we have to accept that it's not just completely crazy that um, there's some kind of argument for it. But as to who would be, how such a thing could ever be designed, whether that's um, extraterrestrials or, uh, yeah, some evolved future um, human being or um, some kind of Lovecraftian um, ultra-dimensional force that um, exists beyond the limits of our current perception, uh, it's yeah difficult to know. <laughs> yeah. You think we'll ever destroy this Earth and end up on another one in the world? Um, we may end up in another world. I don't think we're going to destroy this earth. No. I've got a feeling that there's not in our lifetimes. It's, um, it's pretty resilient. Um, we might make a few dents in it, but, um, yeah, I don't think we've quite got that capacity yet. I know they talk about like drastic, you know, weather change, too hot, too cold getting us possibly. Yeah, yeah, that might happen, and there might be some mass extinction event for um for for a bunch of humans. But I think the the planet's going to keep rocking. There's probably another um few million years of history to come. Without human, post humanity, are we going to have some humans scattered in there? Yeah, I reckon humans will make it too because they're also pretty resilient. Yeah. Um, and um, even in an absolute worst-case scenario, I suspect there'll be some people under a rock somewhere who will um, make it through. Um, so, so I, I get the I get the impression we'll stagger on. I mean, this sort of things apparently happened before. 
So, um, I mean, there was, there've been mass extinction events during, um, human time. I mean, um, there seems there's pretty good evidence for a, um, a, a shift of the magnetic fields that happened in like, um, Cro-Magnon time. And, um, our primitive ancestors seem to have, um, to have made it through despite it being like, um, super cataclysmic and, um, climate shift, massive climate shifts and everything else. They, um, still seem to have, um, endured and left behind cave art and, um, come out the other end. So, um, I suspect no matter what zaps us, um, a few folk are going to survive somewhere, be it in, um, yeah, the, the Hindu Kush or, um, Australia or somewhere. But uh, I think it would take an awful lot to, um, completely cauterize the planet. And get all the regular, all the people that are, uh, living the glamorous life, maybe in the cities and stuff. I know you look like you, you stay pretty, your, 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 your surroundings look, uh, very peaceful, we'll say. You know what I mean? Whenever I see pictures of stuff, it's very, it looks like you don't get a lot of city around you. You kind of got your own little thing going, which is nice. That's kind of the way to do it. I think people like that will have a better chance of survival, you know what I mean? Than people that would be like in a city or even us real close to the coast, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what they put out of the bag. I mean, almost anything could happen at any moment. So, um, you know, it's difficult yeah. to know um, w- uh, which way we'll go. I mean, we lost all of the um, Wi-Fi here for two days of last week, uh, which um, took down the um, ATMs and um, credit card facilities, and there was no news coming in or out. And most of the cells were down too. And for the first 24 hours, there was a sense of, hmm, could this be the end of the world? Uh, is, there, is, is the outside world still out there? Uh, and then there was a kind of sense of disappointment as we reconnected. And, um, <laughs> you just, you just never know. But, um, certainly in, thanks to the whole, um, COVID pandemic and stuff, um, we've concentrated, we've gone a bit more survivalistic in, um, the last, um, two years and, um, made um strong moves to um safeguard the um local um water sources and the um the actual watershed uh managed to close down a mountaintop mining operation that was um threatening the water sources because we all kind of know that um in the eventuality of um really bad things happening we need to be able to yeah, keep drinking safely and to um have like a minimum yield on the vegetable patch. And there was a sort of vague move towards stockpiling arms, but this is Europe, so you know, one Winchester and an old hunting rifle was as much as anyone could come up with. Yeah. Uh, a, a general movement towards self-sufficiency, um, water-driven electricity, and um, I, I guess everyone's watching world events carefully. Yeah. Yeah, we're big. They're big on right now. They're big on you know farming's kind of an issue. They think they say there's a food shortage coming. Um, we had issues with the truck drivers. Were, you know they didn't want to get the vaccine type deal, so like the, the trucks were going to stop for a while. Uh, there's a lot of weird things that could play into something like that. You know what I mean? But the COVID thing kind of got everybody prepped, kind of preparing them for future things. You know, like it, over here in Texas. Um, I think right before COVID happened, we had an issue where like they got a bunch of snow and then they never got snow. So they lost electricity. I guess, they, they, you know, people froze to death because they just, they, they had no heat. I remember and, that. Yeah. Yeah. They just weren't ready for it. And like, yeah, I think they prep more because even, you know, even if, 
like YouTube, like there was, I remember when that happened, there was people going around and there was like a little, how little way to make heat, which was like, a it was like a Yankee candle and like a copper, like a, a, a clay pot. And you put the pot over the candle and it'll heat up the pot and the pot will stay warm throughout the night or whatever. So like it's little life hacks that could be very valuable in a situation like the Texas situation that that could have saved people's lives. You know what I mean? But you, you couldn't get that info to them. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, possibly the way we're most vulnerable is what happens if the machine stops or the, yeah, when the Wi-Fi goes down, because yeah, that um, has a, um, a series of knockout effects that kind of, takes down civilization very fast and it's a one area where we're very vulnerable and where you don't need even a, a tsunami or a, a cyclone or um, a, a nuclear weapon that can just um, happen for a, a bunch of reasons a, a big enough solar storm will do it yeah and, um, we're getting off the Halloween topic then too uh, it's very scary <laughs> but it's off Halloween <laughs> so why are pumpkins orange hmm <laughs> Um, so I, I know you said you had a, you had a, a costume story. Yeah, I did. It's a biggie though. Right. Oh, I, I love biggie stories. Yeah. It was the one I thought I'd, um, share for, um, Halloween this year. I haven't given it due thought. I guess, uh, yeah, launch into it, but yeah, this happened, um, a bunch of years ago and, um, back in the. Yeah, days of my youth when I was still um, doing a lot of, um, yeah, rock festivals and um, basically living rough in the United Kingdom. And um, basically I got into a fight with a bunch of hippies at the Glastonbury Festival in the TP field. Uh, must have been about 20 years ago. Uh, I got into a fight with the, uh, with the peace police who are a bunch of self-appointed sort of um, hippie vigilantes keeping um, peace in the in the green fields. And it was, uh, it was largely a racial thing. Um, they detected I was foreign and um, they thought that um, the standing stones in the land was theirs. And I figured they had blonde hair and blue eyes, so they were descended from Danish and Viking invasions and went real Celt, something along those lines. But uh, in the midst of this fracas, um, I got rescued by a, um, a big Scots lad um, a guy named Mark Oxbrow, who was down from Edinburgh and attending the festival as part of some fringe theatre thing. And he was um, fully dressed as Punch, the fool, so very familiar from The Wicker Man, and um, waded into the fight because he saw that I was on my own and being picked on by a, a bunch of other guys. So um waded in on my side, and um, I was super grateful to him. And um, Mark then proceeded to told me he was organizing a, um, a yearly pagan festival in Scotland uh, and said that if they don't want you down here and um, in Glastonbury, come up to Scotland and help me light fires. And um, what, what had happened is he'd seen the Wicker Man on television and um, had had the same thought as many other people, which is um, what a shame that, uh, that this isn't real. Uh, can we actually make this happen? Uh, um, he'd um, created his own ritual and uh, he'd gotten um, funding from the lottery fund to um, to do a um, a Beltane fire made a, made a effigy burning thing on top of um, Carlton Hill in Scotland so um, in Edinburgh uh, on the back of yeah Mark's initiative um, he managed to found something called the Beltane Fire Society 
who um, still exist to this day. Um, the deal is they light a huge big bonfire on top of Carlton Hill on Beltane night. Uh, and there's, no, it's, it's usually about three to 400 performers. And then at um, dawn on May Day, generally we used to blow up a pyrotechnic effigy. And um, this got started, um, yeah, way back in um, the um, late 80s, early 90s. And um, I, I was very fortunate to, um, yeah, be Mark's friend and to be in on the early days of it. And um, rapidly within two, three years, it um, grew. So um, on average now, it's attracting an audience of around um, 10,000 people. And um, really between, yeah, eight to 10,000, possibly more. Um, it's become part of a sort of a tourist attraction in, in Edinburgh and gets a certain amount of um, news coverage. People assume it's an ancient rite or an ancient tradition, but actually it's only about um, 20 years old and was uh, established by my crazy buddy, Mark, who literally got the idea from um, watching The Wicker Man. And, um, yeah, for a bunch of years, I was in charge of the um, what we called the torchbearers, which was the um, right in the early days of the festival, we were using ordinary stewards who had um, glow-in-the-dark like day-glow bibs on to keep the crowd back. But um, I had the idea of replacing the stewards with um, very tall, um, frightening-looking Scots lads, um, completely covered in black, black paint, black clothes, and um, painting runic lettering on their faces in silver, and then giving them burning torches, which made them very fierce. And um, these guys would keep the crowd back and cut the crowd so that the performers and dancers could come through. And I was generally the right-hand torchbearer for about the first five years or so of the... um, Beltane Fire Society's inception. And um, after about, um, yeah, eight years of doing this, it was such a hit with the um, the authorities in, in Edinburgh that they said, why don't you guys do a Halloween too? Um, the I'm seeing is the Beltane's going so well, you should do a Sawain and uh, do both ends of the summer. So um, Mark sat down and... Um, invented a um an ideal halloween um ritual for um edinburgh and started doing sarwains and how this went is that on the um in the on the other side of the year in the beginning of summer on beltane night and coming into um mayday morning um what the things you did is we we like crowned a may queen and a may king there was the whole summer court and the the green man was present so for the Sarwain, the Halloween experience at the other end of the year, the decision was to bring back the May Queen and the May King and the characters from the um, the Beltane thing, but show them as being kind of really burned out, a little bit fagged and fashed after the long summer, um, kind of finished. Um, they would then process through Edinburgh up to the, the Sarwain Festival, which still happens today. Uh, and will happen at the end of this month, uh, happens outside the main cathedral in Edinburgh. And the um, the summer court process through the town and, uh, and come to the, the main cathedral. And once they're all there, then the, the winter court arrives, who replaces them. And the winter court always come with tremendous fury and energy, and um, come shrieking and screaming into the square. And they generally also painted black, carrying torches and um, extremely fierce. Uh, the winter court then rages in and slays the summer court. The king of summer has to fight the king of winter. 
there's generally a big a full-on battle. The king of winter slays the king of summer, tears him apart. Uh, the uh, yeah, the the winter court is crowned, which uh, yeah happens every um, every Halloween. So on the very first one of these. Uh, um, outside the uh, outside the cathedral, it was uh, the first time that um, the Beltane boys had been asked to do a Halloween. So um, Mark, who was in charge in those days, um, um, got pretty drunk. Everyone was partying pretty hard before it happened. Uh, uh, he was Mark was the king of winter, and they came raging in. And as a result of them being a little a little soused. Um, they put a lot of energy into the fight. It was a red, the, the King of Summer and the King of Winter had a, a really super sword fight. It was, um, yeah, very strong. Um, King of, uh, King of Summer slain. And, um, then at that point, the, um, Queen of Winter arrives. And I remember the entire, with the, about a, one and a half thousand people were watching. Everyone fell silent. And, um, the crowd parted as the Queen of Winter arrived and she was a, a lady entirely covered in, um, blue paint who was underneath a, um, a black, a black cloak. And she came through just as a black cloak completely wrapped up and through the middle of the crowd and up, up to the plinth just after the King of Summer had been slain and came up on stage. And as she got on stage, she unveiled herself first with just one blue hand coming out of the, um, out of the cloth. And then, st- then fully unveiled herself, and we had this naked blue girl standing over the, the body of the King of Summer. And at that point, snow started to fall. Snowflakes started to condense out of the wow. air over the uh, over, over the crowd. The whole crowd, about one and a half thousand people, went silent, and it started to fucking snow, which um, we had not planned on. And yeah. um, it was a, it was a, it was a point further than, than uh, we thought it was going to go. But uh, I, I tell that story because it was yeah pure, pure synchronicity. But at the same time, it was a moment where we all felt that somehow we were doing the right thing. Yeah. That uh, whatever it was was saying yes, okay. Um, um, okay, not so much a, um, a ghost story as a, a sort of pagan miracle story. One of those special moments, you know. Mother Nature liked that show so much she wanted to put her stamp of approval at the end, you know what I mean? One of those things. It's it's cool when that stuff lines up. It, it is, you know. I do find that uh, along the same lines, those weird occurrences, you know what I mean, that just miraculously happen for, like, no reason, but, like, they happen at perfect times to let you know that something is there that is bigger, you know what I mean? Bigger than everybody. Yeah, I love it when a plan comes together like that. And, <laughs> um, and I've certainly seen a lot of odd stuff happen in the neo-pagan scene, but that was as close to a yeah a full-on miracle as I've actually seen. Yeah, All Hallows Eve, Sam Hain. I dig it. Yeah. I don't have any cool stories like that. That was that was an epic story, and it ended with a full collaboration with the supernatural. You know what I mean? Something definitely came in. That was definitely. What do you think about um, everybody? The fact that everybody was having a good time on the same vibe, uh, and almost were, was open. Almost was hoping for something like that. Maybe the energy could make something like that happen. 
I think that that's how a lot of shamanic stuff seems to happen, and that often a um, a well executed prank or um, something which is a complete con, um, if enough people believe in it, can um, generate its own um, its own weird magical effect. And there's some kind of suspension of um, belief that happens in in magic, which is kind of the the realm magic. If you're able to trick the audience to thinking that um, someone is levitating or something is really happening, the the real beauty of it is in the the audience's suspension of disbelief. And um, I think um, once more than fifty percent of the people in the crowd believe something is happening, it becomes reality. I mean, becomes a, a kind of consensus reality. I agree that I agree with that completely. We've talked about human mind conjuring before, where if enough people will believe that something's real, it can slightly slowly turn into being real. You know what I mean? Um, almost have that Freddy Krueger aspect to it a little bit. Well, reality is what we believe it to be, and uh, if we don't know for sure what's going on, we look to the guy sitting next to us in the hope that they'll have a better idea. But if everyone in the room is uh, of, the, of the same opinion that it's actually happening, then I guess it's reality. Yeah. <laughs> so how are you spending Halloween this year? What are you up to? What I'm up to this year? Well, I haven't got a, a firm plan yet. Um yeah. But um, we're just finishing shooting a, um, a another feature-length documentary, so um, we're wrapping up the concluding scenes in the um, the documentary feature over the last two weeks of October, uh, and um, it's another um, basically another sort of autobiographical glimpse into what's um, going on here in the mountains, and there's a, a direct sequel to um, L'Autremont, the other world, the film we released a few years ago yeah but a heck of a lot's happened since then and um, this one's been um shot over the course of the last five years so um yeah two of the participants in the story um die in the course of the shooting um Yorani, the sorcerer um died while we were shooting so um that's in the film and um as are um most of the um um kind of um dramatic twists and turns that have happened since so we're hoping to um, wrap it up with a, um, a positive um, finale showing the um, the resurgence and continuation of the um, strange faith here in the mountains. So I guess we'll have a, um, a few different um, gatherings that we'll put together for um, the sake of um, yeah, putting it all on film. Yeah, that's the beauty of documentaries is like you start with the subject, but the documentary itself that becomes a part of the story as well, you know. We worked. I uh, worked on a documentary on, but based on nine eleven, uh, years years ago, and uh, uh, the the subjects of it was these two parents of, of someone who was on one of the planes that crashed into one of the World Trade Centers, and uh, after that they started up like a school for um, girls in Afghanistan. It was one of those things, and it was plagued. They shot for like ten years. It was plagued with trouble. Like somebody did a, a bombing at the school and killed some kids. Like awful stuff. And then the actual parent. Like the mother who was like the main source of it eventually passed away, Sally, which was very sad. And then the documentary kind of diminished after like, you know, kind of went downhill after that. But I'm glad that you guys are making, you know, can make the best of it. I, that, that, I like to see the transforming, you know, of the documentary, even when you, the documentary itself is given a tough hand, you know what I mean? Not just the subject matter. 
but it kind of almost killed the documentary crew too a couple of times. So um, they, they, that, that kind of got them sucked in. Yeah. Um, um, it became, I, I guess, they got emotionally involved. Oh, uh, um, and so, yeah, the, the crew are all Scandinavian and are coming in at the end of next week to um, attempt to complete the um, the show. So yeah. I reckon that'll run on until Halloween and um, we'll probably um, be shooting some kind of gathering on Halloween night. As you said that, people will be, people will be listening and watching you say that while you're shooting. This is the type of world we live in. This is, this is yeah, it's an interconnected world, that's for sure. And, yeah, what's going on here is we're trying to, um, I guess, put, uh, capture uh, um, some essence of um, the battle that's been fought in these mountains and the, um, we, just what's happened. It's a, bit like, it's a bit like putting a message in a bottle. Um, yeah. um, it'll um, bubble to the surface at some point in another couple of years, uh, at which point it'll all make hopefully more sense. But, um, yeah, um, my general approach has been to be completely open and honest with the, um, with the camera and with the crew. Uh, but, um, yeah, they've, um, they've captured some pretty giddy times out here. Yeah. The best docs always do. You know what I mean? You are also in part of the new, uh, Mobius book, if I remember correctly, the Metamorphy. Yeah, it's nice to see that stuff bubbling to the surface because um, a lot of folk these days, um, the kids these days, simply have not come across it. Uh, they're utterly baffled by the some of the material from the, the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's nice to see some coming back, particularly with the um, yeah the release of the new Dune. It's um, gotten attention back onto some of the, um, the folk who are um, designing the Hodorowski Dune. And, of course, that's brings us back to um to Mobius to HR Ginger and um Dan O'Bannon and folk like that who have been um a little neglected by the um yeah by the current generation. Yeah. Yeah, I know he, him and Hodorowski did a graphic novel uh run, I believe. But that Dune, I said you I love that doc that Dune documentary is fantastic. I love it. Yeah, it'd be nice to see some somebody animate the storyboards one day. I would, that would be, that would be fan, like a nice animated movie. I'd love to see that. Otto's still making movies, so it'd be interesting to see him kind of get that going again. Yeah, I imagine it's the rights issue. Yeah. yeah I think that um, rights-wise, it's too difficult for him to do it. But um, I it, probably, it probably won't happen in Otto's lifetime because he's getting on there. But um, the sheer fact that um, the whole thing is um, thoroughly storyboarded and um, yeah, completely viewable in, um, you know, as, a, as sequential art means that, so, yeah, somebody could come along even in 100 years and um, do a pretty respectable job of um, animating the material. And the, um, it, it tells its story pretty well. Plenty have borrowed, I, I believe, Star Wars, uh, unofficially borrowed a little bit from from what he wanted to do with Dune. Yeah, I mean, it seems that um, the um, saturation of the of Hollywood by um, the Mobius art and the Dune storyboards um, led to, had a big impact in the um, the generation that came up after that. Certainly, Star Wars, but also um, a lot of the design and look of the Dino De Laurentiis, Flash Gordon, um, um, yeah, a lot of the um, the space opera stuff that started to um, surface at that point in time. And um, yeah, unfortunately, the original expression of it um, never made it to the screen. But yeah, um, yeah maybe somewhere further down the pike. 
It's the same way that um, the Mobius, um, Dan O'Bannon um, comic strip, The Long Tomorrow, is clearly the um, a huge influence on um, yeah, Blade Runner, um, the Heavy Metal movie, Fifth Element, all of the um, the future Megapolis um, film noir, um, Private Dick with a flying car kind of um, material that came right after that. But the original hasn't ever really been filmed. It hasn't um, hasn't had its moment. I mean, just yeah, just the the weird way things run out there. Dan O'Bannon gone way too soon. Very sad story. Very sad. Rest in peace. Do you have a personal favorite Hodorowski film that you enjoy? Ah, uh, well, so yeah, we're delving away from Halloween further and further. Bit, but, um, yeah, um, heck, um, I think the um, for folk coming in from the outside, the most perfectly formed Hado movie is probably Santa Sangre. It's a reason. It's a reasonable length. It's really accessible. Um, um, super, super strong. I mean, um, beyond that, I'd say go to Holy Mountain. But Holy Mountain's so long and so far over the top that it it, it may be a tough one to start on. Santa Sangre is a classic. We all here, uh, the three of us, we do, we do film, of course, and we did a, show, a short called Insomniac that had Sabrina Dennison, who plays Alma, and uh, Santa Sangre in it. And I love that movie. The first time I watched that movie, I was blown away. He was a filmmaker I tapped into later in life, and uh, I got a box set, and I was blown away, and then I went and got Santa Sangre, and was just like, wow, just like devastatingly great. But, yeah, it's close to a perfect movie. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Richard, what's your hopes for the future of Halloween? Well, I'd like to see it get stronger and the Halloween fires to burn ever more brightly. Yeah. I mean, um, really, um, what went what went wrong in the past is that um, yeah, we suffered um, centuries of persecution by um, first the Inquisition and then by um, witch hunters. Um, the um, the original veneration of the, um, the the pagan seasonal dates was all but wiped out in in Europe and treated with um, yeah great um, suspicion. And w- what they did in a lot of countries is they tried to politicize it and kind of displaced its meaning into um, national holidays. So somehow May Day became a labor holiday and then became associated with communism and, uh, and kind of moved away from um, being um, yeah, a pagan date. And England, um, Halloween, um, rather than being on October 31st, stayed bonfire night, but they, it drifted into November the 5th, five days out, and became Guy Fawkes and became a, a celebration of um, hang, hanging, drawing and quartering an Irishman who tried to blow up Parliament. Uh, they kind of uh, politicized it again and, and, and altered its character a little. But, um, yeah, thanks to um, the mass media, thanks to um, aforementioned movies like Carpenter's Halloween, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, um, Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, etc., it snuck back into the popular consciousness and people have started celebrating Halloween in England and then sort of still celebrating bonfire night five days later. And the, the, the period of time between them has gotten woozy and smoky and it's no one's quite sure um, h- how to market, but I would like to um, see that get stronger and more focused over the, um, the centuries to come. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I support that to the fullest. Yeah, definitely. Well, 
Richard, we thank you. You know, we'll That's be- been an honor and a privilege, sir. We'll get you back with us again soon. Always an honor and a privilege. And you have a happy Halloween over there. You too, sir. A blessed Sawin, one and all. Oh, yes. Yeah. We love it. And uh, we love you all. So if you're out there, you're listening, and you like this, go on the Facebook page. We have a Boombastic Cast Facebook page. Our episodes are up on the YouTube Boombastic Media page. Also, a Boombastic Media Facebook page if you want to pop in there and check out some of the other shows that we have and some all our previous shows are all archived away. And if you feel like spending some cheddar cheese loot on the boys, uh, you can pop over into Boombastic Streaming where we have very cool perks for everything we do from podcasting to films and all everything Everything, 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 everything. A little bit of everything can be found there. So with that being said, thank y'all for joining us on this journey again. And we'll catch all y'all on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast. Peace. Peace.